0: I'll read for us Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As you can see, our sermon title this morning is Total Depravity. And total depravity is the theological expression that describes the three verses we just read. You could define total depravity this way. Man is very, very, very bad. (laughs) And God is very, very, very mad. (laughs) You get those two together and you have the idea of total depravity. People are more sinful than they think. Listen, you will never, ever commit a mistake in thinking too highly of your sin. We never make too much of our sin. We never take our sin too seriously. It's always the opposite, in fact. We often ascribe things to our own righteousness that are, in fact, owing to our own sin. We often attribute good motives to us when, in fact, it is evil motives that are at work. We are never guilty of thinking too much about our sin. This is what we find in Ephesians 2. In fact, we are described in Ephesians 2 as being dead in sins and trespasses. This is a noteworthy description here of our sin, especially as you see how it's contrasted with the kind of language Paul used in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is all about the glorious nature of the gospel, the Trinitarian council in heaven between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Ephesians 1 is filled with this eternal, beautiful language, this overstatement about how much God loves us, and we're his beloved, and he chose us, and he's lavished on us, and he's displayed his riches on us. It's all this incredibly beautiful language that's used all the way up into the eternity right now. What a contrast in chapter 2 that doesn't use language like beloved in these few verses, doesn't use language like redemption, and guarantee, and inheritance, but instead uses language like dead and trespasses, and disobedience, and wrath, and lusts, and passions, and desires, and cravings. That's this section here. And so it really is jarring how you encounter this turn of phrase here from Paul. Again, at the end of chapter 1, Paul has elevated us as high as we can go. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 22, all things are under the feet of Christ. And God gave Christ his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so there's this image of Christ at the right hand of the Father with his feet on top of the world, reigning over the world. And he fills us with his Holy Spirit, with all of these heavenly treasures. And it's just such exalted language that you feel like you get in a car crash when you hit chapter 2, verse 1. Oh, how beautiful this is, except for you. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. This is the doctrine of depravity, a doctrine that is you know, seldom talked about. Outside of the church, most non-Christians don't understand depravity. They, uh, they have worldviews that are incompatible with depravity. The humanist, for example, says that mankind, though imperfect, is able to achieve great moral goodness. The self-righteous person declares that by his own effort and his own work, he can understand what goodness is and can in fact exhibit it in his life. The, the naturalist or the evolutionist would deny a difference between good and evil, any kind of inherent distinction between the two. And so you have a naturalist that says that there is no such thing as good and evil, a humanist that says that, yeah, you're imperfect, but you can do it, and the self-righteous that says, I in fact do it myself. And in contrast, the Bible confronts you with a view of depravity that is very different. The Bible tells the humanist that there is no self-righteousness that will come from Adam's fountain, that any virtue you think you have is not, in fact, from you. You've been drinking the wrong fountain. Everyone who descends from Adam is, in fact, a sinner. To the self-righteous person, the Bible says that you're not capable. You lack the capacity of moral goodness because of your depravity. And to the naturalist or the evolutionist, the Bible simply says there is a distinction between good and evil. The problem is you're on the wrong side of that distinction. And so the Bible is alone in worldviews and how it describes depravity and how it describes sin. It wants to make you aware of the reality of your fallen state. And so this is kind of a bad news sermon. We get to the good news next week. <laughs> This week, bad news. So don't die on me this week, okay? Hold on one more week. Let me give you an outline this morning. The anatomy of a spiritual zombie. And I chose that phrase, zombie, spiritual zombie, carefully and over some protestations. Zombie is a word that describes somebody who is dead and yet walking around. We have an English word for that. One of the reasons you need to love English. We have a word for that a person who is dead and yet still walks. And that's the image we find in Ephesians chapter 2 of a person in their sin. Though dead, we have movement to us. The spiritual zombie, uh, the person apart from Christ is dead but walking. And so for this entire outline as we go through it this morning, I'm talking about the person absent faith in Christ. I'm talking about a person before they were a Christian. I am talking about all of you because Paul is using the second person plural here. You all were dead in your sins and trespasses. But if you're in Christ, he's talking about your previous state. He's talking about before you encountered Christ, this is what you were like. Now, Even in our Christian relationship, depravity is still a reality. We are still depraved. But the distinction is that for a Christian, we are not mastered by sin. But for the non-Christian, they are mastered by sin. They're described as dead in sin. Whereas the Christian is alive to Christ. The Christian still sins and depravity still touches every part of of our body. In that sense, depravity is still total in our life. It's touching every element of our of our life, every capacity we have. But for the non-Christian, specifically what this outline in the Ephesians 2, 1-3 is addressing, they're dead in their sins. And dead is not hyperbolic language. Paul is taking the concept of spiritual death from the Lord himself, from God himself, back in Genesis. In Genesis, God created the earth good and sinless, but it was not good for Adam to be alone. So he created Eve from Adam's rib, he made a, a helpmate for for Adam. And together, Adam and Eve were given the charge to be fruitful, to bear children, to multiply, and to subdue the earth. They were supposed to reign as little gods, have little authority, little sovereignty, little dominions on the earth. That's the charge given to Adam and Eve, and this is exactly what the devil saw. And the devil wanted that for himself. The devil wanted to rule the earth, not Adam, not Eve. Nevertheless, when God made Adam and Eve and established them and gave them their charge, he declared that now it was not just good, it was very good. They were to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and all was well. The only charge he gave them other than the command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not to eat from that tree because the day they ate from it, they would surely die. Now, they did eat from the tree, of course, because Satan did take aim at their their marriage. Satan wanted control of the earth. He wanted to have dominion on the earth. He did not want Adam and Eve to have it. And so he targets the relationship that God designed, the relationship that went from making the earth good to very good, namely marriage. So he goes after Eve, not necessarily because women are more easily deceived than men, but particularly in the area that Adam was supposed to be exercising leadership and and headship, supposed to be protecting his wife. She was supposed to be submissive to him. And so the devil targets that relationship and goes after Eve. And Eve does indeed sin. She sins by doubting God's kindness and his benevolence. She sins by changing God's word. She tells the devil that God, in fact, said not to touch the tree when God said no such thing. She started to change the word of God and to doubt that God's word was for her good. And she believed the devil when the devil said, if you eat it, you will know the difference between good and evil and you will be like God. It's a a lie package in truth, isn't it? The lie is that you will be like God. The reality is that you'll be dead in sins and trespasses. The reality is that you will know the difference between good and evil. You'll be dead to the good and alive to the evil. And so Eve rebelled against God and ate the fruit and gave some to her husband who was with her. So also deceived. Eve was not alone deceived. Adam was right there, front row seat to this. He should have been on the ice and said he was watching from behind the glass. And he too sinned. And this plunges the human race into sin, a, a life of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so Adam and Eve will not live forever. But the promise God gave wasn't that the day they ate from the sin, it would start a physical process of death that ultimately 900 years later would result in them physically dying. That was not the promise. He said, the day you eat, you shall die. And in in fact, that is what happened. The day they ate the fruit, they did die. It's not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death will eventually produce physical death. But in Adam and Eve, initially, they encountered the wages of sin through their own spiritual death. What does spiritual death look like? Well, you get a picture of it with Adam and Eve, don't you? As soon as they ate from the fruit, they went and hid from God. How bad must your theology be to try hiding from God? It's like Jonah level bad theology right there. Before they had a rich and vibrant relationship with God, they used to walk with God in the garden. They, they communicated with Him, they talked with Him, they had a, a real personal relationship with God. Once they sinned and they experienced spiritual death, that relationship ended. They began hiding, they were ashamed. God called and they ignored. God asked questions not to learn information. God, of course, knew the answer to the questions. You know, did you listen to the snake? God knew what happened. Where are you? Are you hiding from me? Did you eat the fruit? Those kind of questions, which, of course, God knows the answer to. He's exposing the deadness that they now experience. They were spiritually dead. Now, after that, every human being born is born in this state of spiritual death. Death produces death. Like produces like. Dogs produce more dogs. Cats produce more cats. Sinners produce more sinners. And so Adam and Eve's children will be born spiritually dead and you encounter this all through the book of Genesis Cain will murder Abel Lamech becomes a murderer in Genesis chapter 4 idolatry spreads throughout the the world in Genesis 4 all the way to Genesis 6 so much so that by Genesis 6 God looks at mankind and declares Genesis 6 verse 5 Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth well how great was it God (laughs) That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, God says. Just look at, this is what we mean by total depravity. Look at how total that language is. Look at how comprehensive that language is. That every, not most, but every intent of his heart. In fact, it's intention of the thoughts of his heart. You see how detached that language is? Every, not just action that you do, but every intention behind every action. Every intention, not just intention, but every heart attitude behind your intention. And not just every heart attitude behind your intention, but every thought of your heart behind your intention that produces every action is only evil continually. Not mostly evil. Not 99.9% evil. Only evil, the scripture says. And not only evil much of the time only evil, continually. And so God says, I won't contend with mankind forever. Their days will be 120 years, which means from 120 years from Genesis 6-5 until the flood. Noah preached for 120 years. Nobody's converted apart from his own family. The Lord destroys the earth, but the waters of the flood did not wash away depravity. In a sense, the waters of the flood, (laughs) infant Baptists often connect the act of infant baptism to the The covenant seen in the washing of the waters of the flood, and there are some similarities. Neither the water of infant baptism or the waters of the flood can take away human sin. They're ineffectual. The Lord washed the whole earth, and yet sin remained in the human heart. They get off the ark, and they kept on sinning. uh, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 describes the attitude of the the post-flood heart. The heart is deceitful above all things, God says. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Above every creature in the world, the heart is more deceitful. No one can understand it. This leads you to the New Testament where the language Paul uses in the book of Romans, for example, he describes people as being of the flesh, meaning fallen, fallen. Doing what we don't understand, Paul says in Romans 7. And here he's talking about as a believer. Paul's describing this is true of Christians, that we often live in the flesh, that we often do what we don't understand. He says, Romans 7 verse 18, nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, he said. Looking at his fallen state. Because even though a person comes to Christ, their fallen state remains their spirit and soul is regenerate, but they still carry around this flesh, this body of death that is depraved. So Paul can end Romans 7 by saying, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of sin and death? This is the concept of spiritual death. We are, Ephesians 2 verse 1, dead dead. And trespasses and sins. The day they ate of the fruit, they died. Spiritual death means a depraved and wicked heart that colors every component of our life, only evil continually. Some people misunderstand the doctrine of total depravity and think that it describes or it means that people don't have free will or that they don't make choices. But the truth is, you do make choices. You do have a will. It's just your will isn't free. I mean, what does that mean to be free? You can't fly like a bird. Doesn't mean you don't have free will. You can't be righteous because it's not in your nature to be righteous. That doesn't mean you don't have free will. Free will is the capacity to make choices, the capacity to choose things. And you certainly have that capacity. That's the problem. If you didn't have will, if you didn't have volition, your sin wouldn't be moral. Your sin wouldn't be on you. If you were just a robot programmed, you came out of the box broken then, I mean, you can't get mad at a robot. He's doing what he's programmed to do. You do have volition. You do make choices. And you make wicked, sinful choices. And this is especially a problem for the person apart from Christ. You know, the Bible teaches that all people at all times choose according to their greatest desire. This is one of those weird overlaps between Christian theology or Christian anthropology and secular philosophy. Even secular philosophers recognize that. This is Nietzsche in the opening part of Beyond Good and Evil. It says that all people at all times choose according to their greatest will, even to their greatest desire, even the person who contemplates suicide. People are always choosing according to their greatest desire. The problem is that our desires are fallen. They're corrupted. They want twisted things. The person who's apart from Christ has no capacity for righteousness because they don't desire Christ. That's what total depravity means. The person apart from Christ lacks the capacity for moral virtue because they lack a love for Christ. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 3 that the light shines into the darkness, but those who are in the darkness run from the light and hide from the light because they do not want their evil deeds exposed. They hate the light, and so they love the darkness. That's what depravity means. Even when a person's conscience constrains them from sin, they're tempted to sin and they don't do it because their conscience convicts them of it and they don't want to act in that sin. Perhaps they refrain from evil because of self-righteous motives or a desire to be a good person and to do good or a desire to be rewarded in this world or get a promotion or be thought well of by their, their family or even to think well of themselves. That kind of thinking and logic has more in common with Adam than Christ. As a side note, this is why sanctification is possible for believers. True righteousness is possible for believers because we have a new nature, namely we love Christ. And so as believers, you can pursue sanctification. For believers, you can be alive in your spirit because your heart loves Christ. And so there is this reservoir of of moral virtue in a believer because you want to be like Christ. But for the person apart from Christ, it's right to call them spiritually dead. Because they don't have the desire to be like Christ. They have no reservoir from which to to draw virtuous actions. Theologically, this means that there is nothing in a person who is apart from Christ that can compel them to make the first move towards God. The non-Christian cannot initiate his own salvation. He cannot work his way towards God. He can't be the, the first cause and aiming towards salvation. He can't initiate and achieve salvation on his own there's nothing in him that would drive him to do that that's what total depravity means that mankind is held in bondage to sin resting under the curse of sin living by wrong principles rooted in sin and thus wholly able to, unable to love god or do anything to merit salvation and the bible calls us sinners and more particularly it calls us dead sinners and again we often think that dead is an overstatement but it is not an overstatement when it comes to our salvation We sometimes think that we could make a little move towards God. We could, you know, or God even looked down the tunnel of time and saw that we would make a move towards Him, so then He chose us to make that move. No. There's nothing in us that would initiate our salvation. Everyone who sins, John 8, verse 34, says, is a slave to sin. We are in bondage to sin. And yet we're walking, it says in verse 2. We're moving around. We're doing things. We're dead, but we're doing things. And because here, dead means you're dead morally. You're dead spiritually. It doesn't mean you're dead physically. You still have movement in life. You're still doing things. You're still making choices. The problem is that the choices come from sin. The problem is that we always choose according to our greatest desire. And the person who's apart from Christ, their greatest desire is going to be sin. Secondly, the anatomy of a spiritual zombie. A spiritual zombie is dead, but walking. And secondly, following, not fighting. We followed, verse 2 says, the course of this world. The person who is dead in sins and trespasses is still moving. They're still walking, but they're not walking anywhere original. They're walking a path that has already been marked. It's already been cleared out for them. The person who's walking in their sin, might think they're being novel and creative in their sin. Oh, no, they're following a path that is already well-tread. It's been marked out by the devil. It has been marked out through centuries and millennia. Every human who has lived before has walked that same path. It's well-lit in everything. There's no creativity in that sense when it comes to sin. You're on a path, you're on a course, is the language in verse 2, of this world. Everyone in the world is on the same path. Jesus calls it the wide path. There's something novel in the sinner. He's on the course of the whole world. And who is he following? You can't blame Adam. You can't blame Eve. Although they did sin and lead us into sin. No, you're following. When you're sinning, you're not only following Adam and Eve. When you're sinning, you're on the course. You're following the path marked out by the devil himself. That's verse 2. The prince of the power of the air. And this language is all over Ephesians. Ephesians often talks about more about principalities. That... There's this divine counsel in the Trinity, and eternity passed in Ephesians 1. And so in Ephesians 6, we're putting on the the weapons of our warfare. We don't fight flesh and blood, but we fight principalities and rulers. That's who Paul's concerned about here. It is a a war between the, the love of Christ and the leadership of the devil in the world. And the person who is dead in their sins and trespasses is stuck serving the prince of the power of the air. He is the king of this world in that sense. The devil is the ruler of this world. He caused Adam and Eve to sin, and he now has dominion over people's hearts as he's reigning over this world. And so the person who's dead in their sins and trespasses is following his lead. Martin Luther said it this way every human being is a, a horse. And there are no riderless horses. You are either being ridden by the Lord or ridden by the devil. Every human heart is under the control or the sway of his rider. And it is there's two riders, Jesus or the devil himself. And Paul here in Ephesians 2 says that the person apart from Christ is being directed, ridden, steered by the devil. Even the non-Christian, who says, I don't believe in the devil. I don't believe in spiritual things. I don't believe in spiritual realities. They're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this air. When the devil is active as he leads us. This is not a passive activity. He's active leading us, and so we're active in sinning. Notice the contrast in Ephesians 1. The Christian has his heart sealed by the Holy Spirit, who's a guarantee of our salvation. The Holy Spirit who works inside of us to conform us to the image of Christ. What a contrast with the end of verse 2. The the non-Christian is sealed by the Spirit who's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Every human heart has a spirit working on that human heart. For the Christian, it's the Holy Spirit. For the non-Christian, it's the spirit of the devil, the spirit of the Antichrist, who is at work in the sons of disobedience. There's only two fathers in the human race. You're either under your father, Adam, or your, your father, Jesus. Everyone who's under Adam is born into sins and trespasses, born spiritually dead. That's why it's described here at the end of verse two, the sons of disobedience. We're all sons of Adam. When you come to faith in Christ, you become a son of Christ. He becomes your new head. But for those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, they're following the course of the prince of the power of the air. It's the spirit of the devil at work in them. And he's at work in all of the hearts of the sons of disobedience. This is the full impact of total depravity. Total depravity, some people get confused by the phrase total. Total doesn't mean that everything you do is as wicked as it could possibly be. It's not what total depravity means. It doesn't mean that everybody is equally wicked. Not all of you are axe murderers, for example. What total depravity means is that the seed of every wickedness is in every one of you. Just because you're not an axe murderer doesn't mean the seed of being an axe murderer isn't in you. Just because you're not an adulterer doesn't mean the seed of adultery is not in you. Just because you're not a thief doesn't mean that the seed of theft is not in you. The seed of every form of hatred and murder, every form of sexual lust and immorality, every form of greed or or avarice is in every human heart. And it's not just in your heart, but it touches, listen carefully, it touches every part of your life. That's the word total. The word total and total depravity means it touches completely everything about you. It touches your will. It touches your intellect, what you think about. It touches your desires, what you want. It touches your passions. It touches your dreams about your future. It touches your motivations, your emotions, your reasoning your objectives, your self-image, your conscience. If there is a human capacity, it is marred by sin. That's the word total, that everything about you is corrupted by sin. That's what Paul's describing in verse 3. We once lived, speaking of believers, once lived like this. And so now we're back to describing non-believers in the passions of our flesh. The word passions, it means the lust for sex or for food or for sleep or for power, for money. Those passions that are from the flesh. Carrying out the longings, desires of the body and of the mind. Some of them you say, oh, there's just a physical desire. Some of them know they're made by the factory in your mind. They're producing these desires, these lusts, these appetites. And they're sinful. Beyond that, by your mind, it says, and in your own nature. So just think about the totality of your sin then. The person who desires something, that desire is marred by sin. Your self-image is marred by sin. You don't think of yourself rightly. You don't. You don't think of yourself rightly because you think of yourself too highly and sin taints what you see. Your conscience is marred by sin. Your conscience convicts you when it shouldn't and is silent when it should speak. Your emotions. We don't know how to feel the right things at the right times. That's because of sin. Our dreams, our desires, what we want to do in life is marred by sin. Again, this doesn't mean that everybody is equally bad. But it does mean that there's different constraints on your sin. Those constraints are either external or they're fallen. Again, to use the axe murder analogy, just because you're not an axe murderer. Do you understand that the reason you're not is not something virtuous in you? What constrains you from living out your sinful desires and lusts is external to you. You don't want to go to jail. You don't want your family to think less of you. You don't want to ruin your life. You know, why do you pay your taxes? Is it because you're feeling charitable and want the government to have your money? Oh, no, why do you pay your taxes? Well, you pay your taxes because you don't want to go to jail. You know? You like your house and the government will take it if you don't pay your taxes. Why don't you steal things? Maybe you don't want to go to jail. Maybe you don't want to get shot by your neighbor when you try to burglar him. Maybe you are self-righteous and you want to be known as a good person. You don't you want to set a good example for your family. And as much as the thing is external to you, it doesn't speak of your virtue. And as much as what restrains you is internal, it's fallen in sin also. That's the concept of total depravity. Everything, everything is marred by sin. Let me give you an analogy that I think will help you understand what I'm saying. I want you to imagine a fictional kingdom on an island ruled by a benevolent king and his council of knights. It's like King Arthur and the Round, Knights of the Round Table styles. what I'm talking about here. So a benevolent king rules his kingdom. And this king loves justice and loves mercy and chivalry and he teaches his knights what chivalry is and how to protect the weak and the vulnerable and the poor and how to be chivalrous, how to help old women with bags of groceries cross streams. There's a purse snatcher. The knights chase him down and arrest him. And so the the whole island is a benevolent kingdom. Everybody loves the king. And it's a safe and secure place where justice reigns. And there is mercy. And it's just, it's a utopia. And everybody loves it. But one day, the knights conspire among themselves. Because frankly, the knights are tired of everybody talking about what a great island and what a great kingdom this is, when they're the ones doing all the work. I mean, the the population is attributing all this to the king. When the knights just think, you know, among us knights here, we're the ones helping old women cross streams. We're the ones chasing down the purse thieves. We're the ones enforcing justice. Everybody's talking about how great the king is. Well, it's us who's doing the work. And so the knights decide, you know what? Let's get rid of the king. Let's banish him. Let's send him to some faraway place, kick him off the island, send him to some place like France or something. And so they banish the king. Now how long will they be able to keep control of the island? So that depends. Do they keep enforcing justice? Do they keep chasing down thieves? Do they keep helping old women with bags of groceries cross creeks? (laughs) If they do, they can keep this up for a long time. And so in that environment, do you understand how every act of virtue is actually treasonous? How every time one of the knights does something good, it's actually done in rebellion against the king. And how every time somebody on that island is refrained from evil, they're checking their evil from an immoral heart and an immoral place out of rebellion to the king. This is the nature of what it means to be spiritually dead and totally depraved. This is what I mean when I say the non-Christian is not capable of true moral virtue. Certainly there are people that are better than others in this world, that are less evil than others in the world, certainly. But there is no such thing in the true biblical sense, apart from Christ, of any real virtue. Because even acts of chivalry, even acts of protecting the, the, the poor and the oppressed, if they're done in rebellion against God, are in and of themselves treasonous. So I say following, not fighting, because I want you to understand that every person who is spiritually dead is following the path marked out for them. They're not fighting against it. They're not reluctant sinners. They're engaged in rebellion against God quite willingly. Which leads us to the third point. Apart from Christ, people are guilty. They are not victims. They're guilty. This is where verse 3 ends. They were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath here means, means they're born into sin, but they are deserving of God's judgment. That's what wrath means. They're deserving of God's judgment. People are born sinners because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin is imputed to us. We stand guilty of Adam's sin. But that's not why we're judged. When the Bible talks about people going to hell, it does not say people are on their way to hell. They're going to be subject to the wrath of God because of Adam's sin. When you die, the book of works is opened up and you're judged according to the deeds done in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5, you'll be judged according to the deeds done in the flesh, both good and evil. You are saved based upon the work of Christ. You are condemned based upon your own works. You're a sinner because of Adam and Eve, but you will stand guilty and deserving of hell because of your own sins. You will not be able to blame Adam and Eve. You will not be able to, jo- to blame the devil. You will join the devil, but you will not blame him. Apart from Christ, people are guilty and deserving of God's wrath, they are not victims of the devil, victims of Adam and Eve. They're willing participants in this. Like the rest, it says at the end of verse 3 of mankind. Again, this total language, this comprehensive language. All people are there. Apart from Christ, everyone in the world matches this description. They're dead, but they're moving around. And as they're moving around, they're following the devil. They're not fighting him. They're following him. And they stand guilty and deserving of God's wrath and judgment. They're not merely innocent victims. If sin was an imperfection, then we would just be imperfect. But sin is not an imperfection. It's an infection that infects everything we do and think and say and feel and plan and desire This is not a new concept. I want to show you how Christians throughout the centuries have described what Paul says in Ephesians 2 here as being dead in sins and trespasses. This is from the Belgic Confession of Faith, a very early Reformation confession. We believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary disease in which Man produces all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof. In other words, we are so sinful that we become our own sinful root. Meaning we're producing fruit because the root, our heart itself, is defiled. It's so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it's sufficient to condemn all mankind. What a contrast between the way people talk of sin today. People will say as an excuse today, they'll say, it's not my fault for sinning this way because that's just how I am. That's who I am. As if that's a defense. But that's not a defense that increases your guilt. It doesn't lessen your guilt. A person to say, of course I'm going to sin in this way because that's who I am. That's exactly right. And that's exactly why it's so wicked. The 39 articles, which is the original confession of the Anglican or Episcopal Church in the U.S., the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith. In other words, because we're spiritually dead, there's nothing we can do to turn and get ourselves ready even to receive faith. We have no power to do good works that are acceptable to God. Yeah, that's just the Anglicans. side a little crazy. What about the Westminster Catechism? The sinfulness... Of that state wherein to man fell, consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness, which means the absence of righteousness, wherein he was created in the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is good. To all that is spiritually good. So if you think of something that is spiritually good, people apart from Christ are the opposite of that thing. That's what it's saying. Westminster Confession says it's similarly. Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to do any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether adverse from good with a capital G meaning divine good and dead to sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself nor to prepare himself even for conversion. Yeah, but those are Presbyterians. They exaggerate, right? London Baptist Confession. Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of body and soul. That's the total depravity phrase right there. All of the faculties of body and soul. If there's something inside of you, depending on how you define will or emotion or volition, Whatever categories you want, if it's related to your body or your soul, it is fallen and dead and defiled. I saved the most important statement of faith for last. Our own church statement of faith says it this way Through mankind's unbridled wickedness, what a great phrase that is, huh? We are sinners ourselves. And consequently, none of us are able by our efforts to reconcile ourselves to God. That's what is meant in Ephesians 2, verse 1, when it describes us as dead in trespasses and sins. A couple of practical applications for you. First, for the non Christian. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you don't have faith in Christ, I want you to see how seriously you deserve God's wrath. That God will judge you for your sin and you won't be able to explain your way out of it because I I fear so often people apart from Christ think that when they die they they don't fear judgment because they think I'm actually kind of a good person. And everybody thinks that because people make choices and you always choose according to your greatest desire and you're not capable of realizing how your desires are all fallen and so you think i'm a good person because i've always done what i thought was right well i know you've always done what you thought was right that's the problem so understand if you're apart from christ understand how much you deserve god's wrath and for believers my appeal to you is that you take the gospel seriously. Like You recognize that the gospel is the cure for what is wrong in the world. That the gospel is the cure for what is wrong in society. I think even specifically right now in the month of October with an election just a few weeks away, how easy it would be for us to wrap our hopes up in the outcome of an election. For us to think that, oh, the problem in our country is if the wrong party wins the election. You know, think of how liberalism is running out of control and the abortion movement is out of control and the biased media is out there and if the wrong if the wrong party wins then this is very bad news and that may that may very well be true i'm not undercutting the significance of the election or all that but i'm appealing to you to not put your hope in an election because an election will not fix what is wrong in our country an election will not Fix the human heart. Because we're depraved. And I hope you understand that. Our kingdom is not in this world. We are depraved. We're sinful. You know politicians. And as much as they express the common good. Can keep back the flood of God's wrath. And that's good and noble. And I'm so thankful for the believers. That are at work in that world. Doing that. To give us freedom. And to, to help secure our freedoms. But I want all of you to just understands that if depravity is true, an election may hold off God's wrath for a while, but it's not going to change it. God's wrath is coming. The only hope for the human heart is new life. Let me close with a couple of illustrations. They're very commonly given to describe the gospel. And I hope that thinking through total depravity, you see how these illustrations fall short. I've heard the gospel described as medicine for a sick person. That the person apart from Christ is lying on their deathbed. That the doctor has diagnosed what is wrong with the person. The doctor has prescribed a medicine that will cure the person. The doctor has given it to his son to bring to the person. The son acting here is the nurse who has the medicine. And the medicine is the gospel. And the nurse puts the medicine to your mouth. And all you have to do is open up your lips... Lift up your head just a fraction and drink the medicine and then you will live. Do you see the problem with that illustration? If you understand Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3, you understand the problem with that illustration is that apart from Christ, sinners aren't on their deathbed, they're dead. You can't open up your mouth and take in a little medicine. That's not going to... You don't have that ability to do that. You don't need medicine. You need a beating heart. You need to be made alive. Second illustration. I read this this very week. A person jumps over the side of a ship and starts drowning. And he's fighting for his life. He can't swim very well. He's trying to keep his head above water. And the captain runs down to the side of the ship and grabs a life vest and with the person's last gasp of strength in him, he gets his head above the water and the captain throws his life vest out and it lands right in front of the person's face. And with his last bit of energy, he's supposed to grab onto the life jacket. And if he does that, he'll live. And that's what the gospel is like. We're drowning and God is the captain and he throws us the gospel. And with your last bit of strength, you have to grab onto it in order to live. Do you understand the problem with that illustration? Are you getting good at this yet? (laughs) The problem with the illustration is that the sinner apart from Christ isn't drowning. He's dead. He's not bobbing. He's at the ocean floor. And how did he get there, by the way? Because he hated the captain of the ship. He jumped overboard to get away from the captain of the ship. I mean, why doesn't the person on his deathbed, even the person on his sickbed, wasn't dead? You think he's going to take the medicine? No, he hates the nurse. He'd put it in his mouth and spit it back at the nurse because he hates the doctor. If you come across a dead body, don't give it a life jacket. You think the dead person you find on the side of the road needs a life vest? Don't give a dead body medicine. The gospel, listen, If you understand total depravity, you go from seeing the gospel as a life vest that you can grab onto or as medicine that will help your sick soul and it is recalibrated in your mind and you understand apart from Christ, you're dead. You don't need a life vest, you need life. You don't need medicine, you need regeneration. And God does give eternal life. He does give new life to people. But it's not because they turned their lips to him. It is not because with their last blast of energy they grabbed on. It's because God can make the human heart alive. More on that next week. Lord, we are thankful that you bring the sinner to life. We know that we stand guilty and convicted of sin before you. We know we deserve your judgment and we deserve your wrath. We have no excuses. Our sinful heart was dark. We we're running away from you. You in your kindness shown the light of Christ in our hearts. And you caused us to believe and to live. I pray for anyone who's here today that does not know you, that has not put their faith in you. I pray today that you would work in their hearts. I pray that you would Cause them to come to life and that they would cry out to you. They would beg you. I pray that they would beg with you for eternal life. Those of us here in Christ, Lord, help us take the gospel seriously. Help us understand how it is the cure for our hearts. We're dead, Lord, but you've given us life. Now we live in you. Jesus Christ, he is our life. We give you thanks for him in Jesus' name. Amen and now for a parting word from pastor jesse johnson thanks for joining us today if you're in the washington dc area i would love to meet you personally at emmanuel bible church our service times and other church information is on our website at ibc.church if you want information about the master's seminary and their washington dc location go to tms.edu I hope this resource has been an encouragement to you and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. May the Lord bless you.